من يدل فلا واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله السلام عليكم ورحمه الله وبركاته ان شاء الله today we're beginning the uh, third day of the conference and this morning and some of you inshallah all of you should have a new schedule that indicates our first uh, lecture for today will be by our brother Sheikh Jamaluddin Zarabozo on the subject of the western conspiracy against Muslim women change correct Muslim women challenges and conspiracy so inshallah uh, we hope that um, we can gain much benefit from this and please take note also of uh, any other schedule changes and uh, lecture changes for the day with that I will turn over the microphone to our brother Sheikh Jamaluddin Zarbos بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهدي من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يذل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدًا عبده ورسوله أما بعد wasn't on the original schedule and actually a lecture uh, for women, not a lecture for men, uh, but inshallah, you, uh, the men in the audience will inshallah benefit uh, somehow, we hope also from the, from the lecture. The lecture title, as Brother uh, Abdul mentioned, is uh, Muslim Women Challenges and Conspiracy. And basically what I'd like to talk about is some of the hardships or some of the challenges that our Muslim women face and some of the movements that have begun to basically to try to change the Muslim woman from the ideal that Islam wants for her to a completely different sort of person. But before doing so, I would like to discuss a topic that has come up many times when I lecture to, to women. And that is, first of all, the concept of challenge and Islam, or the concept that we will uh, most likely in our lives face obstacles, face hardships, and how is it that we should respond to those hardships. I'd like to begin first of all by saying that some people misunderstand the concept of Islam as being an easy religion. 
they read the verses in the Quran in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, for example, وَمَجْعَلَ عَلَيْكُمْ فِي الدِّينِ مِنْ That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has not created any hardship for you in the religion. And similar other verse in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that he does not desire hardship. Well, these verses in the Quran, what they mean is that the obligations that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us in the Sharia, the things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has obligated for all of us to do, like the five daily prayers, fasting of the month of Ramadan, it means that in general, in fact, these things are not hardships upon the individual, that it is within the capability of the individual to perform and to do these things. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not burden us, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, لَا يُكَلِّفُ اللَّهُ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not actually burden us with anything that is beyond our capability. But these verses do not mean that there will not be challenges for us. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not try us in the deen. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not put us through test. In fact, these are all aspects of the deen. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will in fact test us. That we show our true iman, our faith, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by our deeds and by our response to these challenges. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Alif Lamim, Ahasib al Nasu and Yutruku and Yakulu Amanna Uhum la yuktanun. And do the people think do the people think that they'll be left alone simply by saying we believe and they have not been tested? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to test us. Is going to put us through situations where we'll have to show our loyalty to our loyalty to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, where we'll have to show our willingness to sacrifice for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And in fact, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tests us through different means, through different ways. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tests us, for example, by putting us through what we could call times of hardship. Where perhaps we are lacking in our material means, in food, maybe in clothing and so forth. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will test us in that way, in the same way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tested the early generation of Muslims. In order for us to, to show our iman, our faith in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in order for our deeds to be approved for us on the day of judgment, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put us through these things and we showed by our deeds, we showed by our deeds our true faith in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and our belief in Him and our willingness to obey Him. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't simply test us through times of hardship. But also Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tests us through times of ease and pleasure. In which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us lots of things. Gives us everything that we need in this dunya. This is also a test from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make sure that we use these things in the way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has ordered us to use them. In fact, many of the ulama, they said the test of ease is much more difficult than the test of hardship.
Because in the test of hardship, you really can't do much. <laughs> you have to be patient. There's not much you can do in many times. For example, if you're put in prison because of your iman, there's not much you can do except be patient. But the test of ease is much more difficult because then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala opens the doors to you for many things. If you want to buy something haram, if you want to do something haram, if you want to spend your time in haram, you have that chance. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tests us through both ways. And also Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tests us and tries us through the commands and the obligations and the prohibitions of the sharia. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands us to do something. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forbids us to do something. All of this is a kind of trial or ibtila. And there's actually no correct English translation for the term ibtila. But all of it is a kind of trial from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for us to show that when we claim to be believers, we can prove it by our actions and our deeds. So that when we meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we will not say to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, had you told me to do this, I would have done it. Had you commanded me to do this, I would have done it and so forth. But in fact, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us the commands, put it within our ability to perform those commands, and inshallah our deeds will be a proof for us and for our, our iman on the day of judgment. And one of those obligations, one of those obligations is the willingness to sacrifice for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is part of our deen that we should be willing to sacrifice for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands us to do something and that is difficult in the worldly sense or requires some effort on our part, then we still are required to do it. Effort and sacrifice is not the same thing as the case of necessity. That's something else. That's where the case of necessity is the exceptional case where you absolutely cannot perform what it is you're asked to perform without a great deal of harm, without losing one of the necessities that, that, that Islam seeks to preserve. But sacrifice, sacrifice is an essential aspect of this deen. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, for example, commands the believers, the believing men to grow beard or to attend the mosque, for, for salat, that takes some sacrifice on their part. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands the believing women to dress, for example, especially in this society, to wear hijab and to behave Islamically, then they have to be willing to sacrifice for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to perform that deed. And perhaps the greatest Perhaps the greatest example, or one of the greatest examples we can see of that, and the concept of sacrifice, is how when we are tested by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and when we meet the challenge from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this world, when we face the onslaught that, that the Muslims are facing today. Nowadays we are living, unfortunately, at the time, it seems Allah alam that the Prophet described, in which those people who are sticking to the deen and sticking to the way of the Quran and Sunnah, they are the Uraba, or they are the strangers. They are the ones who are very few in number. They are the ones who are considered different or strange and so on. 
And it is during this time especially when we have to meet the onslaught of the challenges and even the conspiracies against Islam that we must remember that sacrificing for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and being willing to sacrifice for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is an essential aspect of this religion. Don't say to yourself that this religion is an easy religion and therefore if we face some hardship it means we don't have to face it and we look for some excuse and some loophole in the fifth book. No, instead it's the opposite. We have to realize that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is giving us these challenges on purpose and we have to respond to them in the proper way. And as I said, as I was about to allude to, is the example of the Ansar. The companions of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam from Medina who for all of those years they opened their doors to the Muslims, the immigrants from Mecca and they sacrificed their lives for the sake of Islam they sacrificed their time, they sacrificed their property and after Fatha Mecca, after Mecca was conquered some of them said to themselves that we have sacrificed a lot during these times but now Alhamdulillah Islam is strong and we have sacrificed our business and our farms now let us go back to our business and our farms and take care of them in other words it's as if it came to their mind that they had sacrificed and now it's time maybe they can relax and they don't have to sacrifice well that's when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed a verse which is quite often misunderstood and misquoted in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says وَأَنْفِقُوا فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ وَلَا تُلْقُوا بِئِذْكُمْ إِلَا تَهْلُكَ which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says stand in the way of Allah and do not destroy yourself or cast yourself to ruin by your own hands the meaning of this verse as Abu Ayyub al-Ansari explained that it was revealed concerning the Ansar is that when you stop sacrificing when you stop giving for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when you stop the jihad in the sake of, for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you are actually destroying yourself by your own hands. You are actually, by your own deeds, by your own lack of sacrifice, you are actually leading yourself to the punishment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But one important aspect is that we must realize that it is part of the deen that we are willing to sacrifice for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is perfectly consistent with the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us no hardship in this dunya, in this world, in this deen. Well, we must be very careful about the way that we worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As true believers, we must be careful that we do not worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and fulfill the deen and fulfill it, fulfill its commands only when it is easy for us, only when we like it and so on. Some people unfortunately, if Islam is, they get some advantage from following Islam, they get some benefit from it, then they will follow Islam, but as soon as there's anything difficult for them in Islam, or as soon as they are tested by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, by anything in Islam, then they leave Islam or they act like they're about to leave Islam. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala described that situation very clearly in the Quran when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَمِنَ النَّاسِ مِنْ يَعْبُدُ اللَّهَ عَلَى حَرْفٍ 
that there are some people who worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as if they're on an edge. If good comes to them, then they're very happy with the deen and they stick to it. But if they are tested with any kind of fitna, any kind of trial in the deen, then they turn away and they lose both this life and the hereafter. And that is the greatest loss. So when we talk about challenges, when we talk about things that we're going to have to face in this dunya, we have to remember that facing challenges, willingness to sacrifice for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, willingness to do anything that, uh, that is pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this is all part of the deen. In fact, this is a necessary aspect of the deen. And this is one of the distinguishing characteristics of the believers. That when any challenge comes to them, they don't submit to that challenge, they don't look for any excuse not to face the challenge. But instead they realize that this is the challenge from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to see what is going to be their response. How are they going to act for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And inshallah, if we have the right, or if we have the true iman, the true faith, and we have the correct knowledge to understand what is happening in this dunya and what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants from us. And we have the yaqeen or the certainty that we're going to meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will judge us in the hereafter. Then when we have those things, then these tests and these trials become very easy. What some Inshallah, don't want to uh, spend the whole lecture just talking about the theory of challenges and so on. So, and as I said earlier, this is, by the way, mostly or it was intended to be a lecture just uh, for the women, for our sisters. If we look at some of the challenges, some of the difficulties, some of the conspiracies, actually, we can even say facing the Muslim women of today, we see that basically it comes from two sources. And I'm going to stress the second source. But let me talk first about the first source or the, the external challenges. That is challenges that are coming from the kuffar. Coming from people outside of the realm of Islam. Well, the kuffar, if we want to talk about it first, on a general scale, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes in many places in the Qur'an, and I don't have to go over them, inshallah, these are all very clear to everyone, that the kuffar, they will never be pleased with Islam, that they have in their hearts a hatred for Islam. And years ago, many years ago, when the kuffar dominated most of the Muslim world, and it clearly dominated up like now, <laughs> when they were actually there ruling over the Muslim world, they realized, they clearly realized the role and the importance of the Muslim woman for the Islamic society. They clearly realized what is her situation and what is her role in keeping the society pure, 
and helping the society obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and what is their role in bringing up the next generation as a pious Muslim generation. So from the beginning until now, and we still see it now in many, many cases, one of the basic goals of the kuffar, of the disbelievers, when they entered into the Muslim land, was to corrupt the Muslim woman and to try to take her out of the deen of Islam. Not by name, necessarily, not converted to Christianity, but by making her such that she is a Muslim woman in the sense that her, her name is an Islamic name, maybe she passed and prays, but everything else about her has nothing to do with Islam. And of course they did that through different means, and we'll discuss some of them inshallah, shortly when I discuss uh, one particular book. But basically, they opened up the concept or the idea of the, of the uh, liberation, women's liberation. Women's liberation is a term that was heard in the Muslim lands from the Kufar a long time before it was heard even in America. They were talking about the liberation of women and women's liberation. And basically what it was, the goal was to bring the woman out of hijab, to bring her out of the house and to have her mixed with men and have the set and evil spread throughout the, uh, the Muslim land. With respect to many of our sisters here, in the United States, also the, the challenge and the threat from the kufar many times comes from family relatives and friends who are no longer, uh, who are not, excuse me, they are not Muslims. And this is in many cases a much more difficult test that someone you grew up with, Someone who you had such a close relationship with, for example, if it's your mother, let's say, all of your life now, you have become Muslim, and she's rejecting Islam, and she doesn't want you to be Muslim, and she doesn't want you to behave like a Muslim. This is a very difficult test that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is giving to many of our believers today in the United States, whether in fact they are men or women. If a woman, for example, wants to wear hijab, then her mother will no longer, doesn't want to be seen with her in public. Doesn't want to go anywhere with her. If a woman is wearing hijab and she doesn't want to mix with men, and her mother has friends over, she doesn't want to invite her daughter. Or if she invites her daughter, she forces her to sit with men and people she's not related to and so on. And this test, as I said, since it's coming from people who are close to you, who you grew up with, it is in fact a very difficult test. It is a very difficult trial from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But if we remember, clearly that whatever, whatever our mothers did for us throughout our whole life, whatever our close relatives did for us, Throughout our whole lives, it cannot compare anything to what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has done for us by creating us, by bringing us into this world, by giving us the material needs that we have in this world, and by guiding us to Islam. That's much greater than anything that any of these kuffar or anything that our relatives have ever done for us. And therefore, our love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and for his deen must be greater than our love for anyone in this world, whether they are Muslim or not. But especially if they're kuffar, 
especially if they're kuffar, rejecting the guidance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we must put our love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala much above our respect and our relations towards them. And we have many examples of that nature among the kuffar, among the sahaba themselves. If you want to take a good example about this and see what kind of hardship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is putting you through and how to face that hardship, then go to the case, go to the situation of the Sahaba and see how many times because of their Iman, because of their faith, they have to be opposed to their fathers, to their sisters, to their mothers, to their brothers and so on. To the point that even in battle, they are willing to fight each other and kill one another because of Islam. Well, actually this kind of test is not only, by the way, just for us Muslims who are converted to Islam. But many times those brothers who came from overseas, they faced the same kind of test. If they came from a family, for example, that wasn't very religious, maybe their wife, for example, didn't used to wear hijab and they used to mix with men and women and so on, Maybe you have dancing and music or whatever. And then they come to this country and they change their ways and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guides them and they make tawbah. When they go back home, usually the first and the strongest enemy that they have, the one that opposes them the most, is their family. Oh, you used to do this and this with us and now just because you've redeemed it, just because you become so pious, you don't do that anymore. And they put pressure on them. They put pressure on them till they have to choose between their family or Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And unfortunately, when na'udhu billah, many of them do not make the right choice in the same way that many American Muslim brothers and sisters do not make the right choice. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comes before anyone. And that must be very clear in your mind and in your heart when you embrace Islam. From that time it should be clear. If you really understand Tawheed, you really understand the meaning of La ilaha illallah. But perhaps a much more difficult test, in a sense, because it's much more deceiving, is the test and the trials and the conspiracy that is coming from Muslim individuals and Muslim groups themselves. Those who, are those who come to us as Muslims, as for example our sisters in Islam, and they're actually taking us away from Islam, that kind of test is much more difficult because oftentimes it's much more hard, much harder to spot. And this is one of the reasons why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala stresses and discusses so much the munafiqeen or the hypocrites in the Quran. In many places over and over Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala clearly shows us the behavior of the hypocrites their actions and what they're doing to Islam. Because the danger of that internal source, that internal enemy, can be much, much greater than the external enemy. For example, if a woman is wearing proper hijab, a sister is wearing proper hijab, and other Muslim women come to her and ridicule her or make fun of her or tell her that she shouldn't be dressed that way, these are her own, supposed to be her own sisters. This is a much more difficult test than anything else you can imagine. And they are her sisters in Islam and they themselves are opposing her. 
At least if the opposition comes from the kuffar, you can understand that the kuffar, they are against Islam. But these people are coming to her, to her, they're supposed to be her sisters in Islam, they're supposed to love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and love the truth, and they are the ones who are putting pressure on her to change and so forth. Well, this challenge, this hardship, is very difficult. Especially if it comes from someone who seems very nice, very sincere, always has nice words, always invites you over, always gives you tea, coffee and dates. And you look at that person and say, MashaAllah, she's Muslim and she seems to be good. And she's always so nice to me. And she's advising me that perhaps I'm too strict in the deen. She's advising me that because the way I'm, I'm dressed I cannot make da'wah, maybe I'm harming Islam. She's advising me that there's no reason to be so hard, that I can go out more, I can work, there's nothing wrong with that, and, and mix with men, there's no reason for the separation and so on. This one, it comes from someone who you look at as a Muslim, and she seems to be your sincere friend. This is a difficult thing. But just remember that a shaitan, when he came to Adam, this is what he said to Adam, that I am your sincere advisor. I am your sincere friend. Eat from that tree. I'm telling you, this is good. Well, this is the way of the shaitan. This is one of the ways of the shaitan, and don't let it fool you. Well, similarly, if that person, not even worse than that, when that person comes to you quoting Quran and Hadith in support of what she's saying, And she's saying, oh, don't worry what all those Muslims do or what those scholars are saying. They, they misunderstand the, the verse says this or the hadith, the hadith says this and so on. So now you not only have a Muslim sister, supposed to be your sister in Islam, who's very nice and so on. Now she's even quoting the Quran and hadith to try to take you away from your practice of Islam. And this is very difficult. If you don't have that iman, that faith, strong faith and you don't have that knowledge I referred to, this can be very difficult indeed. It will be hard for a Muslim woman, especially if, for example, she's not married or she doesn't have some close sisters close to her who can help her, who can show her what they are actually trying to do to her and so on. This test will be very difficult and very hard. Indeed. Well, what I'd like to do, uh, perhaps for the remainder uh, of this uh, of this lecture, is to discuss in particular some examples of what we're seeing, especially in the United States, of this nature of where people whether they are groups, organized groups, or individuals, and so on, are really presenting a challenge to our sisters who are trying to stick to the real Qur'an wa Sunnah, to the real deen, by trying, for example, to present arguments and so on. Well, unfortunately, here in the United States, we have organizations. Organizations that are partly dedicated to this concept of changing the role or changing the situation of the Muslim woman in Islam. There are organizations in the United States of Muslims, and one of their one of their priorities, one of their priorities, 
is to change the rules and the situation of women in Islam. And we have also individuals. And as I said, sometimes it can be very confusing. Inshallah, I'm going to give maybe just two examples. Because time doesn't permit us to go into too much uh, detail. Although actually I have no idea how much time I have. 30 more minutes? Inshallah, Abdul Qadr, someday you will learn that I actually don't like to give lectures and I try to finish as soon as possible, so if you could... Uh, <laughs> you know, most speakers, they like, you know, can I have 10, 15 more minutes? I'm, I'm dying here just to finish and kill. <laughs> I'd like to take one example, start off with one example. This is a book published by American Trust Publications. I will not go to another extreme... Uh, <laughs> group that uh, Brother Abdul Qadir is very well familiar with, the writings of Kukul Siddiqui, because those are even beyond, uh, I think most intelligent people will not be fooled by what he, what he writes. The problem with this book in particular and why I picked it out is that this is a book published by American Trust Publications, which is of course owned by and a body of the Islamic Society of North America. And unfortunately, and of course, it's not my purpose here to put down the Islamic Society of North America, Islam, but unfortunately, in many times, especially when they speak with ulama overseas to get some fatwas, they present themselves as, as the, the, the basic organization or the basic jama'ah of Muslims in the United States. Well, if that's the case, then they should, then they should present and stand up for the true Islam and not publish and not have speeches and not have organizations and not have uh, conferences and so on that in fact are working against, especially with respect to the situation of Muslim women, the true, uh, the true Islam. This book written by, uh, and I didn't even write the name of the book down anywhere here. This book written by Ismail Korski's wife, I think it's called, yeah, I think it's called Islam. Uh, women in Muslim society or something something of that nature. I'd just like to, to, as I said, read you some of the quotes in that book to see what are some of the, some of the things that Muslim women are going to be reading or coming across. If you see a book with that name and you're a Muslim woman, chances are you might be interested in that book. But these are, these are examples that are representative of some of the more intellectually or academic attacks on the Muslim women to try to change uh, the situation of the Muslim women. To give, uh, to give one example, she says, the Quran specifically called for equal rights for men and women in divorce. And she quotes, the book, she quotes the verse, which is a, a general verse, actually has nothing to do with what she's saying. Anyone who's familiar with the, uh, the practice of Islam with respect to divorce, how a man does divorce and how a woman gets a divorce, it is completely different 
She's saying that the Quran specifically called for equal rights for men and, and women in divorce. Have you heard any faqih? Have you seen any hadith? Have you heard anyone ever say that a woman can make pronouncements of divorce to her husband and say you are divorced and then he's divorced? And that's what she's implying. They have equal rights in divorce. And the situation, in fact, is, is not that way whatsoever. The way of divorce for men and women are different. And then she tries to prove that some of the early women in Islam, they were known for fashion and beauty and literature. She talks about the daughter of Hussein ibn Ali. Sukaina, very famous in the history. She said she was a leader in fashion, beauty and literature whose salons and intellectual parties were famous in the entire Muslim world at that time. But this is nothing but a blatant lie. If you read the books of, of history, the authentic books of history, not books like Al-Ghani and others that are just full of nonsense that have no source whatsoever for them, you will find that she was a devout Muslim scholar, not known for parties and, <laughs> and fashion and other things. And another argument that you hear often, these women of early Islam were not veiled, she writes, they were enjoyed by Islam. Uh, to be modest, but they were never told to live lives of segregation and isolation. Now, Muhammad Nasruddin al-Bani is one of those scholars who says that the uh, covering of the face or the veil is not obligatory for the Muslim woman, regardless of whether his opinion on that is correct or not. But at the same time, in his book, he says it is a sunnah, and he brings many examples of authentic hadith that the women during the time of the Prophet Muhammad were wearing veils. And they continued to do so afterwards. But now it has become very common, and you hear this, you hear this in many conferences and many speeches throughout the United States, that in fact the early Muslim women were not wearing veils, and this is something that they, the Muslims picked up from the Byzantines or from the Persians later. And in fact she mentions the same thing in her, in her book later. And this again, this is nothing but a denial of the, of the history. One of the strangest, or one of the perhaps worst passages that you can find in that book, in which she is talking about hijab, and she, she quotes from Surah uh, Noor, in which it says that the Muslim woman should, uh, should not display the beauty and, and ornaments, except what appears thereof, illa ma minha. Now listen to what she's saying. If this isn't the end of hijab, if what she's calling for isn't the end of hijab, I don't know what to do. She says, the Arabic expression, illa mazahar. In other words, except what appears thereof, used in this passage, for what must ordinarily appear thereof, is one which signifies recommending, first of all recommending, although it's in order, it says, recommending a conformance with the prevailing customs of a region or period. And says nothing about the necessity for the veil, for all enveloping wraps, they left only the hands exposed. This is a book, as I said, published by ATP. It is saying that the hijab, there's no such thing as a hijab, but it is, the Quran is saying that we must conform with the prevailing customs 
of a regional period. Tell me what's the prevailing custom of the United States and the women in the United States. You're going to tell me that this verse in the Quran that says don't display your ornaments and your beauty to anyone except these men is telling us that the Muslim women can wear whatever is the prevailing custom at that time. It, imagine if you're, a new, if you're a new Muslim woman just converted to Islam and you hear, for example, about Islam, you see that they publish this book and so on. You will think that this book has some authority. And here's another one that you people, uh, you folks from last night will, will I think, enjoy. You see, what uh, if Muhammad is not the, the, the mujaddid that you thought he was? <laughs> because she says, she writes, in fact, because of grammatical requirements, nafs is a feminine word in Arabic, as is the word wahida, meaning one person. The first person is created as feminine. Despite this fact, now listen to this, this is really amazing. Despite this fact, English translations, influenced by the Old Testament story, make the transfer to masculine when translating the relevant passage from the Quran. <laughs> I think we discussed that last night, but the point is here, it says in Hadith, it says clear in the Quran, and she's saying that English translators are influenced by the Old Testament story. So again, if you're a new Muslim woman, you're not, you don't even have access to the Arabic work. You're going to think, aha, yeah, I remember that from the Old Testament, that's what I grew up knowing. It's not that way in the Quran. And then she talked about some of the reform movements in the Muslim world. She mentions the well-known writer and activist, Jamal Din al-Afghani, no relation to me, by the way and his student Muhammad Abdu included reforms in the treatment of women in their movement. So we'll leave Jamal Din Afghani and Muhammad Abdu for the time being. Not for the time being, I will not discuss them in <laughs> Qasim Amin, she continues, Qasim Amin was another active leader in the movement for emancipation of women as viewed from within the Islamic context. Don't know how many of you are familiar with Qasim Amin. But to describe Qasim Amin as an active leader in the movement for emancipation of women, that part is okay. As viewed from within the Islamic context, that's a little bit far-fetched. Qasim Amin lived at the turn of the century in Egypt. And basically, his, his basic argument, he went to France, he visited Europe, and basically his basic argument was our Egyptian women must follow their French sisters and everything. He said the reason the Muslim world is behind is because they fell behind in the three great arts of theater and music. I forget the other one. The three great arts is he called. In his book on Tahrir al-Mara or the, or the emancipation of women, Basically, he called for changes in everything in the Sharia related to Islam, and he said we must follow the way of Europe. Europe is a civilized, as a scientific civilization. Perfection only comes through science, so therefore, if we want perfection, we have to follow the way of the Europeans. This is who she is quoting and saying that this was within the Islamic concept of Muslim leader working for emancipation of Islam. 
Another argument that, that you hear quite often, and there are particular arguments, actually, I had a whole section about them, but we probably won't have time for that. She says most of these reformers sought change through a reinterpretation of the original sources of the Sharia rather than a completely new creation based on a foreign cultural heritage. She just quoted Qasim Amin, saying Qasim Amin is a great leader in the emancipation of women. He didn't care anything about reinterpreting the Sharia. She says that these people sought a change through the reinterpretation of the original sources of the Sharia rather than in a completely new creation based on a foreign cultural heritage. That's the opposite. They look to the West, they look to the French, and so on. As many people, unfortunately, nowadays are looking to America and so on. This question? Uh, brother Aqil al-Maqtari, Sheikh Aqil al-Maqtari, one of the speakers in the Arabic session, he, he did something which uh, I think I might follow his sunnah. And he took up all the time with his lecture. Hour and a half, no time for questions. Well, uh, <laughs> you. In another passage, she talks about started in Egypt and so on. I don't know if you're familiar with the with the magazines that started in Egypt. One of them, one of the most famous, one of them, Rukn al-Islam. Another one, Ruz al-Yusuf. Ruz al-Yusuf. Uh, was actually, and by the way, almost all of these magazines that started in Egypt, they were started by Lebanese Christians. They were not started by Muslim women. They were started by Lebanese Christians, but they, of course, they were writing about Islam and so forth. And one of them, Ruz al-Yusuf, the writer, Ahsan Abdul Qadud, which, by the way, is not uh, Muslim. This is the kind of magazine she's praising. He wrote one time, and this is just uh, an example of the kind of thing that you'll see in those magazines. He said, I would, he said, he wrote, I would like every young lady to take her boyfriend by his hand and take him to her father and tell him, this is my boyfriend. By the way, this was early, this was early 20th century in Egypt. I mean, even here in the United States, they still had some bounds. And this is what they're going for in the Muslim land. They're going even beyond what you'll find, uh, in the land of the Kufar. But this, this kind of thing, this kind of, uh, conspiracy and this kind of pressure and challenge being put on Muslim women, it is continuing today. You can see it in magazines in the United States. You can see it especially in in a magazine. I want to talk about this uh, example. The, the example of Sadisi magazine. This is an excellent example of the kind of things, the kind of pressure that is being put upon uh, Muslim women. This magazine supposedly is written for and on behalf of Saudi women. And it is distributed free of charge to every Saudi student in the United States. In fact, many of them get two copies, one for the husband and one for the wife. And even after they move, we had some brothers moving from their apartment, and another brother moves in his place. They get they get Saudi magazine at their new address, and it still comes to their old address. And it is being spread with unbelievable proportions. And unfortunately, it has had a strong influence on many uh, Saudi women. In fact, it becomes like a drug. They have to read it. If their husbands tell them there's lost the facade and so on, don't read this magazine. And they throw it away. As soon as they receive it, they'll find out that their wife is going to their neighbor and reading it there. But this is... this.
where it is the kind of ideas that they're trying to spread to the Muslim woman in Saudi Arabia. And the same kind of things are going to be attempted to be spread here in the United States among the, our Muslim sisters. Well, inshallah, just to be brief, I want to uh, quickly go over some of the uh, some of the examples, some the, the, the nature of this uh, magazine. Basically, the magazine is promote, promoting uh, going without hijab, wearing makeup outside, traveling alone without a chaperone. Uh, leaving the house, leaving the parents, leaving the children, how to be as beautiful as possible, how to keep up with the latest fashion from, uh, from Europe and so on, keeping up with the stars and the royal families of England and so on. Here are some of the examples of the, uh, some articles from Slavity magazine. In issue number 269, the, the title of the article was Between the House and Work. The Saudi woman accused advancement. In it, the article has women, of course, without hijab, as the example of mixing between house and work. They are going out in public without hijab, but mashallah, according to the article, they have done a beautiful job of, of bending between, or, or, or any balancing between house and work. And the Minaret magazine did pretty much, pretty much the same thing. They had an article about a Muslim woman who, mashallah, is doing, I think, work possibly, so she's able to work at home. Well, you think that's great, she can work at home, so she doesn't have to go out, she can wear hijab and so on. So, of course, they show a picture of her working at home, and she doesn't have the job. She's in the picture and working at home. And, they, and they're setting her up, they're showing her as an example of what Muslim woman should be. That's Minaret Magazine from uh, Southern California. Another issue of Saidity, they talk about Captain Afnan, the first female Saudi pilot. And it says that she is giving the real picture of Saudi women. Another issue they state, Another issue, they state that being a stewardess is the dream of every Saudi woman. It says that then she can travel to different places, see all sorts of new things and benefit spiritually and materially. Then they interviewed the director for the school of stewardesses and he discussed how they have to be a certain weight and certain height and they take classes about how to put their hair up and how to wear makeup and so on. Another issue, they talked about one woman, one Saudi woman's dream to study in England and she complained that her brothers were against it and she said they shouldn't have anything to say about it, I should be able to be free to go to England to study. Uh, in another article, they complained that the young women, the young girls, again, they're talking about Saudi women, the young women of today are being cut off from love and pleasure and so on. And they, at the end of the article, they're complaining that fathers and mothers are having too much control over their children and therefore their children cannot fulfill their dreams. And finally it ends about choosing husband that says, we know that there are some good men out there, but how and where can we meet them? Another issue, <laughs> another issue it says, it uh, talks about some women who are working in banks, and it says the Sharia permits women to work in banks and it's a good idea, as soon as the banks deal with riba, obviously. And they give the example of who? Khadija. He said, oh, look, Khadija was a businesswoman, so forth, so therefore it's good for Muslim women to... Uh... On numerous occasions, they describe marriage as being a prison, and they say that women are, are oppressed. And then they describe movies or stories, or they, sometimes they write stories in which a woman is kept from marrying her lover. So she either has to live a life of misery, or she runs away to marry him, and so on. Uh, they recommend that men and women should meet each other. And they even give example of a woman telling her, her daughter to, to get dressed, I mean dressed nicely, in order to go to some place out in the wilderness to meet her cousin that she's thinking of uh, 
or getting uh, married to. Well, here's an, here's, an, here's an article to show you how poisonous this magazine is and what really its goal is and how much it is against Islam, but again, it is being spread to all of the Saudi women. Here's an article between the editor of the magazine and a woman. The woman says, you follow those old values that are not useful today. The editor says, and you? She said, I think that the laws of yesterday are not meant to rule today, obviously, nor tomorrow. So he says, but the past is the history of the future. And then she says, the world changes, my dear friend. You are sleeping under the books of heritage and the dreams of the poems of Imam al-Qais and Ahmed Shok, who are poets. So he says, and you? And she says, I do not believe that the Jahiliya poetry can judge the emotions of the 21st century. So he says, but values do not change. She says, the opposite, values change the most. He says, everything then changes? He says, yes, everything. And you and me. So he says, nothing stays the same. Notice now how they, as if, mashallah, such good Muslims. He says, nothing stays the same. He says, nothing except the faith of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Everything changes, all values changes, means all the Sharia, of course, changes. Nothing changes except the value of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And of course, they have a very nice section about you know, one of the purposes of hijab is that when you go out in public, the Muslim woman is not being a source of attraction for men. But of course, they have a section about how can you look your best while wearing hijab. What's the nicest and, and most attractive fashion that comes to your face and, and everything except your face and hands and looks the best when you go out. Well, some of the articles, again, <clears throat> I'll just mention the names of some articles that they have. Uh, my heart and mine are for enjoyment only. Where do the stars go during Ramadan? Uh, Jamila Lamna, which is an Arab actress, says, Deep love is a must for marriage. Nancy Reagan sings, says one of their articles. Diana, Princess, oh, they love the royal family. I'm sure they're all, you know, so, so much shocked that they're separated. Diana hates to give speeches. They had a four-page article on, is Michael Jackson's skin black or white? <laughs> Love knows no restrictions. They had an article called, Seeking a Man. Eating in the streets is more pleasing. How to plot against your husband. And these are, these are some of the things that are being spread to our Muslim sisters and in, the, in this world, and it is all part of the idea or our part of the plan by the kuffar, by the munafiqeen among us to try to bring the women out of Islam. They will remain Muslim in name, they might even pray and fast, they might even supposedly wear hijab, but in fact they will not really be Muslim. Well, I want to end inshallah with some advice. I don't want to extend. What do you mean, God? <laughs> no. Let me just make some uh, advices, inshallah, to our sisters. Inshallah, also our brothers can uh, benefit from it. If you want to know really how you should behave as a Muslim sister, as a Muslim woman, 
and you want to get an example in your life and look to really see how you are supposed to be and what is the best way for you to be to gain Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's pleasure, then look to the Quran, look to the Sunnah, look to the examples of the female Sahaba and how they live their lives, how they live their lives for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Secondly, don't be overwhelmed by this world. Don't see the pleasures of this world and think, in fact, that they are real pleasures. In fact, many of you come, many of you converted to Islam, you come from the world of Kufr and Jahiliyyah, and you know that, in fact, that many times people look like they're happy and they're having fun drinking or whatever, or mixing with men and women or dancing, but you know that in the long run, as long as they don't have Islam, they're not going to be happy. And in fact, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes that situation in the Quran, that those people who turned away from the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they will live a very tight life in this world. But thirdly, also don't look to the ways of the kuffar and don't aspire to be like the kuffar. And you should feel the izzah or the honor of being a Muslimah, that you are following the way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah our Creator, you're following the way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has asked you to behave. And this is far better and far better and far greater than the way of the kuffar, those people that are barely different than animals. In fact, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in one verse even describes them, but whom they are even more misguided than the animals who cannot hear and see and think. So you should feel that honor of Islam and don't look to the ways of the kuffar and see what the kuffar are doing and think. Maybe this is what you want or so on, but you should feel that, alhamdulillah, I am Muslim, I am following the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and there's no way that is better than the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Well, fifthly also, don't be confused by tricky statements, by rational arguments. If the Quran or Sunnah says something and it is clear, it is clear to you, don't let people come and give you some long rational argument and so forth to try to fool you, but just remember that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the book as a clear book and the sunnah of the Prophet is clear and if it says something and it is clear to you then it means that thing and that is what you're supposed to follow and don't let anyone try to fool you with any kind of rational argument fifthly or whatever number I'm on I will not ask him because he's not <laughs> you have to realize the notion that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to test you test both men and women and that especially nowadays, the test, it is like a tidal wave for many sisters coming from the kuffar, coming from their relatives, coming from Muslim sisters, coming from Muslim organizations, magazines, books, and so on. Well, you have to realize that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is testing you in these things, and the easiest thing is to see it as a test from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and even just to smile, smile at it and say, I know this is... Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to see my action, my sacrifice for his sake. And inshallah, you will be able to do it. Well, finally also, always seek your pleasure and happiness only in one thing. Not in pleasing your friends, not in getting more of this life, but seek your happiness and pleasure only in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Judge everything by whether or not you are pleasing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if you please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this should make you happy. And if you are displeasing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this should make you unhappy and uncomfortable. And if you judge everything in that life, inshallah all of the challenges, all the pressure, pressure that will come to you will become inshallah very easy for you. 
and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will guide you through the straight path, support you and help you and give you jinnah and the hereafter. Inshallah, we only have uh, we have about 15 minutes to answer questions, and I have at least 25, 30, now probably 40 questions in front of me. And uh, so, Inshallah, I'm going to try to se separate some that of, are of more of a sick nature to be held for uh, the session with Sheikh uh, Ali Hassan Halabi, Inshallah, that I believe is scheduled. Um, for 4 o'clock, 4 p.m. today. The entire session will be questions and answers, inshallah. So this will be a better opportunity. Um, so some of those questions I'm going to try to put aside. Um, inshallah. Some very important questions here. Um, one is about a hadith where the Rasul sallallahu is reported to have instructed or have said to instructed a woman to prostrate to her husband. This hadith is said to border on shirk or bid'ah. Some say it is authentic. Please comment on this. First of all, um, the hadith is not exactly the relation of the hadith even in English. And inshallah, the brother is familiar with this hadith. Uh, it's very important because we, unfortunately, we also have this hadith and several others as a justification by some brothers to abuse their wives, to in fact mistreat them. So this is a very important topic which uh, perhaps uh, our brother Jamal can comment on the, the degree of the sin of, of this and uh, at the same time, inshallah, can make a commentary on this particular hadith. Inshallah. Uh, I think we should do our best, uh, do the best of our ability. That when we refer to hadith and when we quote hadith, we do our best to quote it as it is. Because sometimes if you misquote a hadith, especially, uh, for example, like in this, in this case, uh, the consequences of the meaning that you give, in fact, can be quite... Uh, quite dangerous and quite against the spirit of Islam. The hadith of the Prophet is when he was describing the, uh, the fact that no one is to prostrate to anyone except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he said that if, if I were to command anyone to prostrate to anyone else, I would command the wife to prostrate to her husband because of the rights that he has upon her. So this hadith is recorded by Tirmidhi and this is the Hassan or good hadith. Well, simply all this is saying, all this is saying is that the wife has a great deal of obligation directly towards her husband. Her husband, a husband, a man in the Muslim society has obligations many times towards many people. Towards the community as a whole, he might have some role towards the mosque, towards his work, towards his family, and so on. 
But with respect to a Muslim woman, her first and her most, or the greatest amount of her duties, and the person who has the most right upon her, is her husband. And this is what the Prophet is describing uh, in, this, in this hadith. That the husband does in fact have lots of rights upon, her, upon his wife, and, or more importantly, the one who has most rights upon the woman is, is her husband. And that's the, uh, the meaning of the Hadith. Well, I'm sure that was uh, from Muslim. See, if I can't hear it echo seven or eight times, I figure you're not, you can't hear me. <laughs> okay. Also because some sisters apparently complained that they could not hear. Okay. As you like. Uh, this, this hadith in no way obviously implies that the, uh, that, the, that the husband is completely in control of, of the wife and that he, she has to listen to every one of his uh, suggestions or whims or whatever the case might be and if she doesn't, therefore he has the right to beat her or something like that. The husband or the father or the, the husband as the head of the household uh, being Qawamun or being the, the head of the uh, head of the household, this is more of a responsibility than it is anything else than it is. And we as men, we should look at this as a great responsibility in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala more than it is some kind of, of uh, right or that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is giving. This means that we are responsible for the decisions of the family. If we lead them to the hellfire, we are the ones leading the hellfire leading them to the hellfire, maybe we'll be sent to the hellfire and they'll be, the family will be in Jannah because they, actually it was because of us that we forced them to go towards the path of the hellfire. It means that we are the ones obligated to make sure that we are doing what is best for our family and for this life and the hereafter, for both this life and the hereafter. Well, this is actually another topic completely, the, the way a family, a Muslim family should be, uh, should behave and so on. Well, I don't want to get into it right now. Another question here uh, is regarding women also, should sisters, how should sisters perform dawah? Should they go out and do dawah, such as in prisons, uh, schools, shelters for women, etc.? No. Uh, in, in general, among the uh, female uh, sahaba, we don't find examples of them going out and, and making doubt. In general, they made doubt to those people who were close to them. Uh, for example, Umar ibn Khattab, it was her sister, and his sister that uh, was the final step in him coming to, uh, coming to Islam. But if there's a situation where there's only women uh, involved, uh, where you can meet privately with women, either in your home or in their setting where, where uh, it is Islamically proper setting, there's nothing, there's no prohibition against women, uh, women making dawah in that setting. You had mentioned earlier about um, 
pressures from the outside and from the inside regarding the Muslim women. One of the biggest pressures is, uh, again, going back to the subject slightly, husbands. Husbands do, in fact, ask their wives or tell their wives not to wear hijab or to, in fact, wear something that is stylish. Um, and to a lesser degree, some husbands who forbid their wives who would desire to wear the face veil forbid them from doing so. Um, would you comment on this? <coughs> the, the Prophet Muhammad said that there is no obedience to the created if it involves disobedience to the Creator. So no matter who the person might be and what relationship you have with that person, whether he is your Imam or the Amir of the Jama'ah or your father, or your husband, or whatever, if he commands you to do something which is not halal, then you do not obey him under any circumstance. So if a Muslim woman is asked by her husband to go out in public dressed in a way that is not Islamically correct, she, she cannot, she should not obey him whatsoever. Now obviously she might be in a situation where she cannot do much, but she can. She should do her best to have her husband talk to and have her husband shown the errant way that he is going. And if he doesn't change, in many circumstances it would be better for the woman to ask for divorce than to remain in a situation where she has been forced to do uh, what is haram. Now with respect to the face cover in particular, <clears throat> Unfortunately, there's uh, a different spinning among the scholars. Some say it is obligatory to cover the face. Others say it is not obligatory to cover the face. And so therefore, you could get into a situation where the, uh, the man believes it isn't obligatory to cover the face and the woman believes it is. So he, asks, so he will ask her not to cover her face in public for whatever reason. Well, this kind of situation requires some uh, wisdom that the man should be seen, should be, should be made to understand that from your wife's beliefs you're asking her to do something haram. The, the man must be shown that it is like him asking her to go without hijab in public. So in that case, I think the solution is that the man uh, you know, if they both study the issue and one decides completely no question that it's, uh, she must cover her face and the other one says no, absolutely, it's not a must. The man must, be that, the man must realize that if he asks his wife in that case not to cover her face, then he should realize that from her point of view it is like him asking her to do something haram. And he should take that into consideration. The Prophet said the best of you are the ones who are best to their wives. Well, obviously, if she feels that something is haram and she has evidence for it and she has many scholars to back her up on her view, the husband should take that into consideration and respect her view. Allah. What are women's rights with respect to acquiring knowledge, particularly if her husband does not possess enough knowledge to teach her? Uh, are there limits with respect to her acquiring knowledge without her husband's permission or in his company? Um, such as attending a convention like this without his permission or company. 
um, is this permissible? <coughs> if the obligation, uh, if the knowledge that she is seeking is something which is known as the, uh, pardon? If the knowledge that she is seeking is something uh, which is known as fardain, or it's something obligatory of her, uh, upon her to know, the basics of the deen, aqidah, beliefs, what she's supposed to believe, and all of these aspects uh, related to how to pray and perform a salat, her obligations and so forth, then in fact the Muslim ulama said that this is an obligation upon her which takes precedence over her husband's rights over her. And they say clearly that in general the, the woman is not allowed to leave the house without the husband's permission, but they said in this case, if she cannot get the knowledge at home, if she cannot get the knowledge at home, and the only way she can get the knowledge is by attending a particular lecture, for example, in the mosque, she has the right to leave her house without her husband's permission. But now that might be different. I didn't see any scholar who said she has the right to travel. For example, she goes halfway across the world to attend the conference. That's a different story. But for example, within a city, if there's a lecture in the mosque that is pertaining to her, to some knowledge that she has to know, she has the right to leave the mosque, uh, to leave her house without her husband's permission to her. That is how important knowledge is in Islam. And of course, the, the, I guess the, the easiest way to, uh, to oppress your wife is not to let her know her rights and, and <laughs> what she can do. But uh, in Islam, that won't work because even if you try to keep her, she has the right to go to such lecture. And if the husband, for example, should punish her in any way, hit her in any way, he is the one who is committing the sin, he is the one who should be brought to Alhamdulillah, inshallah, that would be the, the final question. And um, we expect the next session to begin at 10. We ask Allah to reward our brother Jamal Adin for his lecture today. And inshallah, um, just as a side point, uh, our brother mentioned several publications, or a, a particular publication, uh, as an example where uh, you find many things which are written that are in fact attacking the status of Muslim women in the guise of being for Muslim women. And uh, there are many books of this nature, and he has discussed several of their arguments. These arguments are repeated over and over again, and in some of them even, even lesser, of even lesser stature or people of even lesser respect. So I would just like to mention just briefly that uh, the books you may read in particular such as the liberation of women through Islam, in which the author says, as Jamal pointed out, that the veil was something that did not appear until 150 years after the death of Rasulullah or that, for example, women, in another book of this particular author, women can be imams and need uh, Salat al-Jum'ah, for example, for the men. Um, this author also, his Islam is coming to question, and in fact it is not in question regarding the uh, ruling of some scholars has gone so far as to deny the return of Isa salam, or the, the appearance of the Mahdi or the, or the Dajjal as is related in the Hadith in the Sahih Hadith which are over 190 sound Hadith uh, related on this matter and this particular author's name is Kalkab Sadiq and he is being billed and has been as a champion of women and I mention it only because one of the tactics which he uses is that, that brothers who come and sisters who come to a conference such as this are automatically accused of if they in fact speak a little Arabic or if they are in attendance with sheikhs 
or scholars from the Arab-speaking world that they are accused of being of a particular traditional backward mind. So inshallah, throughout, of this, throughout these lectures by our distinguished guests, uh, such as our brother Jamal al-Din, inshallah, it should be clear to us that we base our opinion not because of our own whims or our own opinions, but those things which are sound and authenticated and proven, as opposed to the methodology of those who try to bring rational arguments, particularly in regard to Muslim women, to try to justify whatever ideas they have. They bring no proof from the Qur'an or from the Sunnah, nor do they interpret them according to a way that is correct, according to the method of our Salaf, our predecessors, and those scholars who have followed them until this day. Wallahu <laughs> Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika, ishara Allah ilaha ta'ala, taqfiru wa tubu